You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. We're glad you're here. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of Acts in the New Testament, and get ready to study God's Word together in a series we call, We Are All Witnesses, Part 3. It's uh, great to be here with all of you this, uh, this evening. Uh, my name's Corey, just in case, uh, I, I would imagine nobody really knows me here, probably. So just by way of introduction... I am the really new guy here at Harvest, and it's really exciting to be actually a part of the team here. I'm not at this campus, but I'm actually the campus pastor over in Highland Park on the North Shore, and uh, I get the privilege of uh, preaching live most Sundays there, which is really exciting, and then I've got this privilege this evening of being able to be here with all of you and be able to share God's word as well. Um, you know, I'm excited to be here because... Um, you know, harvest, when I think about harvest, it really reminds me of the great harvest, right, that Jesus talks about. Uh, Jesus was all about the harvest. And really what we're trying to do over in the North Shore, just so that you know this, is that we're actually really trying the best that we can to relaunch or replant the North Shore campus. And uh, so we're in some early stages of that from now until uh, September of 2024, we're going to have the opportunity to, to relaunch. Right now, we're in a process of sort of revitalization and rebuilding with a view to, to relaunching that campus because Jesus said the harvest is plentiful and with the harvest being like it is, uh, we got to get out there. We got to tell people about Jesus. And so that's what we're all about. Now, one of the ways that we are relaunching and what we're doing, relaunching and replanting as a campus is that we're doing all kinds of things sort of in our facility. We're, we're sort of rebuilding some areas in terms of ministries on the inside. We're a little campus, but we're praying that the Lord sort of blows the doors off of that campus and he does some great things, you know, coming in the months to come. So I'm excited to be here with you all here. Um, I also want to just to give you kind of a little bit of a financial update because one of the things that it's really important to kind of keep a connection in is what you do in terms of your giving is what enables us to be on mission. So your giving actually helps us. And we're all about the mission. We're called to, to grow together. We're called to gather together. We're called to go. And so really being able to give to the mission is such a critical piece here for us to be able to do that. And I just want to say thank you because... That's what we're seeking to do over in our campus as well as the other campuses as well. So just wanted to give you a quick update as we kind of get close to the end of the year. The financial need that's here for 2023 is $1.4 million. Just want to encourage you. God is always meeting the needs of his church. He takes care of his church. He always has and he always will. We're confident he'll continue to do that. But I want to ask that you would just prayerfully consider as you get to the end here of 2023, how you might be able to help the church because this is our church, right? And we can do this together because what we want to do is position ourselves really well for going into 2024 so that we can continue to go forward on mission. And um, we're excited to be able to do that, as I mentioned. So if you're ever over in the North Shore and you want to kind of come by and sort of see us someday and cheer us on, we'd love to have you join us for a particular Sunday. I want to ask that you just join me, though, first before we open God's word and uh, just take a moment to pray together. Father, we, we pause after that incredible time of worship and song. We're so grateful. You've been so good to us, and your generosity towards us is incredible. And Lord, we ask that you would just quiet our hearts and 
calm our hearts and minds. And Lord, with all the maybe worries and cares sometimes that press upon us, would you help us now, even in this next while, as we hear your word? Would you help us to draw close to you? That Holy Spirit, you would open up our ears to hear and our eyes to see and give us hearts that, Lord, just are really soft for you. Jesus, we know you love your church. So, Jesus, we thank you that you are here in our midst, that you walk among us. We're so grateful for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, over the last couple of weeks at Harvest, we've been in a new series, right? In the series here that we're doing for Christmas, it's called What Christmas Says About God. And we've seen over the last couple of weeks that, first of all, God is generous. And last week, we heard how God is near. And, that, and Christmas really is a time where you can really zone in on the characteristics of God. Who is God? His attributes. In tonight's message, what I want to do is I want to share with you how God is faithful. How God is faithful. And I want to share with you in three particular ways tonight how God is actually faithful here to us. Now, how does Christmas actually show that? How does actually Christmas say that loud and clear that God is faithful? Three different ways. Number one is this. God is faithful to his promises. He's so faithful to his promise. And now I don't know if any of you have done this before. If you've read the Bible from cover to cover, you've probably done that. Some of you, I would imagine, which is wonderful. But have you ever read the Bible cover to cover, reading just for the promises of God? Just trying to identify exactly how many promises are in Scripture. Anybody know how many promises there are? Now, I've never done this personally, okay? But apparently there's 8,810 promises according to one individual. That's a lot of promises in Scripture. And you know, when you read Scripture and you read the promises of God, they could be things like, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Promises. From God. And God, when he makes a promise, he's faithful to that promise. He keeps that promise because he's not a liar. He keeps his word. And when it comes to Christmas and we think about Christmas, what is Christmas? It's really all about the fulfillment of a whole bunch of promises from God. That God has made all these promises through the years, all the way from the beginning of the Bible, all the way through the time of Jesus, and they've all come to pass in fulfillment with incredible precision and accuracy. I want to give you a bit of a walkthrough of some of those in this first point here with you this afternoon. In Genesis chapter 3, if you go all the way back to the beginning, sometimes you think, what in the world does Genesis 3 have to do with Christmas? It actually has everything to do with it, doesn't it? Because it's in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve fell into sin. And as a result of that, they plunged all of humanity into sin. And, and we, we heard last week how we started near to God, but we had drifted far from God in sin. And we were banished from the garden. And as a result of that, there was these consequences that came upon us. And we experienced the weight and the burden of sin. But right in the middle of that, even though all of that happened, the love of God that's poured out in this promise in Genesis chapter 3, notice what he says when he puts the curse upon the serpent, the promise that he gives, the first promise probably of the entire Bible. We read in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, 
Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now you might say, look at this and you say, well, how does this again have anything to do with Christmas? How does this relate? What is, what is the promise that's given in this text? This is seriously the first promise in scripture that God gave to us right on the heels of a, the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. And it's a message of hope right here in the text. And here's what it is in verse 15. God says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And we have to ask ourselves, who's the offspring of the devil here in this passage? And who's the woman's offspring? As you read through the book of Genesis, and really as you read all the way through into the New Testament, you see that there's almost these two sort of parallel lines that develop from Cain and Abel, the descendants of Adam and Eve, and Cain ends up killing Abel, and, and then Seth comes along, and then you have all of the other descendants that go in that line, and then you have Cain's line and his descendants who go all in another direction, and you have all the way through Genesis, you begin to see the emergence of these two lines they're developing. It's almost as if you're seeing right here in the text in Genesis, the unfolding of what he said in 3 verse 15, that there will be the offspring of the enemy and the offspring of the woman. Not literal physical offspring of the enemy, but rather as it sort of rolls itself out in the New Testament, John's language the Apostle John, as he says, there are those who are children of God and those who are the children of the devil. You see, and those two, those two groups have gone throughout all of time from the beginning of Genesis all the way to today. The same thing is true. But, but that's not, that's not the, the sole thing that's said in this passage. There's something in particular in this passage about the woman's offspring that refers to something in the future. Notice it says... That her offspring, of her offspring, he shall bruise or crush your head. In other words, he is going to crush the head of the serpent. You know what Adam failed to do in the garden? That he was actually appointed by God to do? In Genesis chapter 1, they were supposed to take authority over all the beasts of the field. And he should have, when the serpent came into the garden, what he should have done is he should have just stepped down and, and crushed the head of the serpent right there. But he failed. He didn't do it. But here in this text tells us that there is one who is coming. Someone in the future. He will crush the head of the serpent. Or bruise the head of the serpent. But the serpent will bruise the heel of that future descendant. So who is this woman's future descendant that's being referred to? Well, traditionally Christians have viewed this text as... The first word of promise in a prophetic sense of deliverance from sin. Genesis 3 verse 15 points to, to this future descendant of the woman who will indeed crush the head of the serpent. Now some people have said that this specifically refers to Jesus and the time that he was hanging upon the cross. It was the serpent that sort of, sort of nipped at the heels and, and, and bruised his heel but but Jesus at, at the cross crushed the head of the serpent. And that's possible. But I want you to think about the fulfillment of this beyond that, in fact. Because the, the ultimate fulfillment of this 
is Romans 16, verse 20, which says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You see, the ultimate final day has not yet arrived, but it's coming. And its focal point was in the coming of Jesus, who is the descendant of that woman. You know, all through the Old Testament, there are so many other promises of God. In fact, um, I'm sure you're quite grateful that we're not here to talk about all 8,810 tonight. There are so many. Many of the promises of God are clustered in Scripture in what we call covenants. Covenants and agreements that God made with his people all through the Bible. So, for example, you might have heard of the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah, or the Abrahamic covenant, which has incredible significance, and, and the Davidic covenant, to name a few. And it's, it's the Davidic covenant that I want to zone in on a little bit as we think about Christmas and how Christmas actually says that God is faithful. You see, the Davidic covenant, in, in approximately 1000 B.C., God spoke through the prophet Nathan to King David. And King David was told these words, starting in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, which, by the way, is... A retelling of the covenant that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. For the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. This is an incredible promise in Scripture, one that has significant ties to the birth of Jesus Christ as it rolls forward in time and fulfillment. This promise in Scripture to King David is not just about David because David is about to die. But we know that God promised several things to David. He said to him that you would have a house. But it wasn't David that would get this house. And it's not a house in the sense of how many square feet and how many rooms. But rather the house in the sense of a dynasty. That he would also have a kingdom. 
that he would have, in other words, a sort of a realm over which he would rule as the king, and that he would be seated on a throne, and that this would be forever, and that the enemies would be no more. Now, when we read this passage in the Old Testament, we have to ask ourselves, well, who does this text actually apply to then? The text specifically tells us that it's not David directly that this applies to because David is about to move on in life. This is going to happen, according to verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. This is what will happen after you lie down with your fathers. But it's an agreement that God made with David about his descendants. He says, I will raise up your offspring in verse 12 after you. Who is the offspring that will be raised up? Well, initially, it's true to say that it's actually Solomon. King Solomon was his direct descendant. He was the son that came right after King David. And when you read this text, it certainly makes sense that it's Solomon to certain to a certain degree, because here in this text, we see that Solomon in verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. That's exactly what Solomon did in first Kings chapter six. He, he built a house. Also in verse, verse 14, we read that when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And we certainly know that to be true as we read the story of first Kings about Solomon. But there's aspects about this Davidic covenant that cannot possibly apply to Solomon. That they must refer to some future descendant that's here in this text. Why is that, Bill? For the simple reason that the word forever is used in this text a couple of times, isn't it? This is an individual who will, the, the kingdom will be established, the throne will be established forever. Solomon has come and Solomon has gone. His lifespan was brief, but this promise yet continued. We also know that as this same language of this covenant is used in the unfolding of scriptures, you read through from 2 Samuel on, you read through all of the prophets, you realize that even years after Solomon's death, this language of the promise of the covenant still remains in force. And that brings us now to approximately 700 BC, roughly 300 years after he spoke to David. God spoke then to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9. 300 years approximately later. And what did he say in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7? We sing these words and some songs, don't we? Here is the prophecy, the prediction that's given, the promise that's given that really picks up on 2 Samuel chapter 7 and takes it now to the next level. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. You see, it's hard to escape the language in this particular prophecy that takes you back to 2 Samuel 7, right? The language of a descendant, the language of a son. And notice it says, the government shall be upon his shoulders. We're talking about David's Davidic rule and his kingdom and his reign, his governmental reign. That government shall be upon the son's shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Notice again the language here of the increase of his government 
and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, this is a God who is faithful will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord will make sure that this actually transpires, that it happens. The promise that he made to David, 300 years later now, through the prophet Isaiah, he's saying, that promise, that, that, promise, that prophecy has not yet fully been fulfilled. There's still one who is coming, and he will be a son, and these will be what we will refer to him as, mighty God, wonderful counsel, everlasting father and prince of peace. But he will be the one who will be on the throne of David, and the government will be upon his shoulders. He will rule and reign. You see, what God said to David in 2 Samuel certainly had that initial fulfillment in his son Solomon. We've seen that. But what God said to David clearly refers to a more distant descendant since the prophecy came so many years later. So again, who does this prophecy refer to? Again, carefully noticing the language that's used and comparing it with God's covenant to David in 2 Samuel 7. We have to ask to whom does Isaiah refer? Well, friends, 700 years later, approximately, in about 6 BC or 5 BC or 4 BC, Roughly in that neighborhood, because we know King Herod died in 4 BC, and that king in Matthew chapter 2 was the one who wanted Jesus to be slaughtered. So Jesus was born sometime before 4 BC. So 700 years after the prophecy came to Isaiah, the fulfillment of that prophecy comes to a virgin. The announcement comes in Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, we're told, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, friends, notice carefully the language that's used here. You know, we can read Luke in isolation completely from Isaiah chapter 9 and 2 Samuel 7, and we would miss so much of a rich connection to the promises of God and how God has been so faithful in the fulfillment of his word. This, what he says here next, is so anchored in deeply with God's promise to bring a redeemer. Notice in verse 31, and behold, he says to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. and You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and on his kingdom. There will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? 
And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You said this text tells us that Jesus fulfills in his birth. He fulfills the promise that's given to David in 2 Samuel 7. He fulfills in his birth the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9. Hundreds of years before, in 1000 BC, roughly, God gave this promise to David. And then in 700 BC, roughly, he gave the prophecy to Isaiah. 700 years later, in roughly 6 BC, he brings it to fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Jesus, we see in this text, is the Son He's referred to as the son of the most high. He will be on the throne of his father, David. He will be over the kingdom and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, forever. As many expected in that first century, there were those certainly who were waiting with anticipation for the the coming of the Messiah. There were a sort of number of so-called messiahs that had emerged on the scene at that time. And there was a heightened sense that the messiah will be coming soon. There's no doubt about that. Historically, we know that to be true. But in terms of what the expectation of the Jewish people of that day was, they did not expect the kind of messiah that they, that they that came in that first century. You see, the expectation that they had from reading some of these texts like Isaiah 9 and such was that. The Messiah would be like David, who would be sitting on upon a literal earthly throne, who would rule and reign over his kingdom, and he would decimate the Romans. He would be a ruling, reigning, conquering king in Israel. But what we find instead in scriptures that certainly Jesus does fulfill all that's said in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. But notice how we're told he first brings about this fulfillment. You see, when Luke tells us that Jesus is on the throne of David or at his birth, he would be over the throne and the kingdom and then over the house. When did all of that happen? To see this, we have to turn our attention a little bit past the resurrection and ascension of Jesus to Acts chapter two, where Peter stands up in the early days of the church and he preaches the word of God to them. And he says these words, starting in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us this day. Being therefore a prophet, and note the language here, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. Isn't that Right out of 2 Samuel chapter 7 it is. He knew. That's what God had sworn to him. That he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Notice verse 31. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades. That is the grave. Nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that were all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see, the fulfillment of this passage, the fulfillment of Luke chapter 1, the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah chapter 9, and culminating in the birth of Jesus, Jesus ascends to heaven and he sits on David's throne. He's exalted. And it's from there, right now, that King David, our king, our resurrected, messianic, Jesus king, rules and reigns over all. And his kingdom is far bigger than a particular geographical area. His kingdom, rule and reign, is this world. And he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he sent his spirit upon his church when he ascended on high and took that throne. He sent his spirit down upon the church to empower the church to go forward with that message of the good news to the world. So according to Luke 1, Acts 2, Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah chapter 9. All the promises of God come to fulfillment in him as a person. Now, I want you just to sort of see this kind of little chart that I put together just to kind of see these texts side by side. You may or not, you know, depending on the power of your own eyeballs, you may not see this very well. Um, but, but all it does is just sort of visually in one spot, give you the opportunity to see these texts side by side. And I just want you to notice kind of at the top, starting from left to right, you can see second Samuel seven, roughly about 1000 BC. These words were spoken 700 BC. Isaiah nine was spoken four BC or a little bit earlier, Luke one. And in Acts chapter 2, in 33 to 35 AD, this is just after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You can see this all coming to pass in fulfillment. So when we think about Christmas, when we think about what does, what does Christmas say about God, Christmas tells us that God is faithful because all of this is about Jesus' birth. All of this is about Christmas, the real reason why he came. It's about the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, into the world. All of these texts, when you consider them together, they tell us these things. They say that Jesus is a son of David. He is. He's referred to as the son of God in a messianic sense also in these texts. Just like Solomon was referred to as a son of God. He's over the house, the kingdom, and the throne of David. And he sat down on David's throne when he ascended into heaven. And he will rule on David's throne forever and ever and ever and what he's currently doing right now is according to passages like Ephesians 1 verse 19 and 20 he is putting all his enemies where under his feet he is going to be doing that all the way until the very end according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he puts everything under his feet and the last thing to be put asunder is death itself and Romans 16, what does it tell us in verse 20? That the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Jesus, you see, is that ultimate fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3. 
Friends, my hope is that you would be encouraged to see that God is faithful in keeping his promises. He has, he has brought all of this about. He keeps his word. He's true. He's trustworthy. I, I hope what you would also do is you, you would look at the word of God because of this and you would say, this is not just a book of man. It's not. It, it comes from God. How is it possible for all of that to, to, be, to be fulfilled in one person in Jesus? Let me give you a quick example of this because there are a pile of other prophecies in the Old Testament with respect to the coming of the Messiah. That some relate to his birth, some relate to later on in his life, and some relate to his death and his resurrection. And I just want to kind of quickly show you some of these. We won't for sure go through any of these in detail, just so you can see. This is just a list of, of 16 different prophecies or promises, predictions that were made by God in Scripture through his prophets about the coming of the Messiah, his birth, death, burial, resurrection. We see that he's born of a woman, born of a virgin, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David, born in Bethlehem, anointed by the Holy Spirit, heralded by John the Baptist. He'd perform miracles, cleanse the temple. He'd be rejected by the Jews. Notice all the stuff about his death that talks about in Scripture. He would die a humiliating death, rejection, silence, being mocked, pierced, crucified with thieves, praying with his first persecutors, the piercing of his side, buried in a rich man's tooth, casting lots for his garments. He'd rise from the dead, ascend into heaven, and would sit down at the right hand of God. Now that's a lot, isn't it? Now that's not everything. That's not everything. And somebody might say, well, you know what? That just... Somebody just, they, they just made that stuff up, you see. The reality is, it would be absolutely impossible for one person to fulfill all of those prophecies. Most of those prophecies, you have no say in. You don't have a say in the place of your birth. If you're going to be born of the seed of Abraham or of the tribe of Judah, all of these things are there and they show 100% with confidence that it was God who authored all of this. Dr. Norman Geisler in his book, apparently not related to Larry, I found out. Um, but uh, Dr. Norman Geisler in his book called When Skeptics Ask, he said this. He said, mathematicians have calculated the probability of 16 predictions being fulfilled in one man at 1 in 10 to the 45th power. 45 zeros behind that. Now, okay, I, I'm no mathematician, okay? I'll freely admit that. And if any of you are mathematicians... Have fun with this. But that's a lot of zeros. That's a lot of zeros. In other words, it ain't happening. This didn't happen by chance. The only reason this happened is because we have a God who's always been faithful to his word. And from the beginning of time and from the beginning in the story of creation, God had already set the wheels in motion in Genesis chapter 3 to unfold all of this to bring us to Christ. To bring about his son who would be born into this world. So that's point number one. God is faithful to his promises. And I can't help but wonder where you feel in terms of how God is with you right now. Sometimes as we walk through this world, we can wonder, God, where are you? Because I feel like you've promised me certain things or your word says certain things and I'm not seeing it happen yet. 
but God is faithful. Just as we've seen in this, the breadth of this text, how God so faithfully over these years has worked this out. You see, but all of that leads us nicely into the second point. You see, because Christmas certainly tells us that God is faithful to his promises and you can trust his word. But, but secondly, God is faithful to his plan. You, you see, God doesn't function in kind of some sort of a, a chaotic kind of way where he's sort of having to respond to people's dictates and, oh my goodness, this person did this, what am I going to do? And freaking out and all of a sudden going over here and having to do something in responsiveness. God doesn't have to do that. You see, God already had a plan for this and he is carefully, if I may use the word sort of executing his plan, strategically executing his plan to bring about all of his promises. So he makes his promises, but he doesn't have to sit there and go, oh my goodness, I hope somebody doesn't foul up my promises. Because he will see that whatever he promises, he will bring to pass because he has a faithful plan that he executes. Notice this when it comes to Jesus and Christmas, what Galatians 4 verse 4 and 5 says. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God's faithfulness to his promises God's faithfulness to bring about his promises. He has a plan that he has in place from the foundation of the world to bring that about. And there will be nothing and there was nothing that could thwart that. But it was only when the fullness of time had come that God was going to bring that about. Not a second earlier. Not a second later. Our text tells us that when the fullness of time come, that's when God sent forth his son. The word, this word right here, this word fullness... If you can kind of think about filling a cup with water, like it, it's, when you get to the point, fullness is the idea, when you get to the point that there's not a single drop more that you could add to that cup without it spilling over. Like it's filled to the max, to the brim, like it's about to overflow. When the fullness of time had come, that's when God brought this about. When the fullness of time, meaning when God's exact, precise time came. You know, when we look back on history, we can actually see some pretty interesting things in history where we evaluate history and you, you sort of get to see, well, what was going on around that time when Jesus was born? And there's a number of things by way of history that indicate that, boy, God's timing on this was really good. Like he really did know what he was doing. You know, for example, um, Warren Wiersbe, a number of years ago, he said that the expression, the fullness of time here in this passage refers to that time when the world was providentially ready for the birth of the Savior. Historians tell us that the Roman world was in great expectation. They were waiting for a deliverer. He said God was preparing the world for the arrival of his son. From a historical point of view, the Roman Empire itself helped prepare the world for the birth of the Savior. How did they do that? They didn't know that the Savior was going to be born, but God knew and God planned and ordained it. The Roman Empire itself were building roads, roads that connected city with city and all cities ultimately with Rome. And Roman laws protected the rights of citizens and Roman soldiers guarded the peace. 
Thanks to both the Greeks and the Roman conquest, Latin and Greek were known across the empire. That's quite substantial when you think about it in terms of what God was going to accomplish in the bringing forth of his son. Why did he bring his son into the world? Galatians 4, 4 and 5 tells us to redeem, to redeem. He brought his son into the world to redeem and to adopt, to redeem you and I from the world, from the ways of the world, from the law, to purchase us to himself and then to adopt us into his own family. And that message had to be heralded, didn't it? It had to be proclaimed and it still has to be proclaimed. And what better time to bring that message when the fullness of time, when the Romans had put the infrastructure in place, when the language was at a place where now all people spoke a very similar language. You see, God was at work behind the scenes, fulfilling his plan, unknown to so many, because we would never see it and know it, but God was at work. You see, those roads were designed and engineered in such a way that some of them even survived to this very day. I've been on some of them. Some of you probably have too. You see, God faithfully unfolds that plan to bring his son into the world. All so that he could redeem and adopt. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. All of this promise, all of it for you and me. And not only for you and me, but for those who are not yet you and me who are out there, who still need to hear this about Jesus, the savior of the world. Now that leads me to the last point this evening, and that is that God is faithful to his people. In many respects, that's what we've been saying all along in this message, that God is faithful to his people. He's faithful to his promise. He's faithful to his plan. All of that because he's faithful to his people. Now, his faithfulness can be seen in a lot of different ways, but I want to give you just two. I want you to think about Israel's history for a moment, Israel's past, as you think about Old Testament history in particular. You see, Old Testament history for Israel is it's checkered by, with all kinds of uh, times of obedience and disobedience, isn't it? You, you read the story of Israel in the Old Testament and you think, my goodness, Lord, why don't you just destroy everybody? Well, and there was a couple of times that he kind of did a little bit of that kind of work. But what's really interesting is that all through it, throughout the entire Old Testament, God still remained faithful to his people, didn't he? I mean, think about certain biblical stories, right? Um, like think about the prophet Hosea. Like an incredible illustration of God's faithfulness using Hosea as an example who ends up marrying somebody who is actually unfaithful to him. And... That's an illustration, really, of how Israel is with, with, with God. And yet God continued to remain faithful. You can see that all the way through the scriptures. When, when, when Israel was unfaithful to God, when, when they disobeyed God, what did God do? He sent the Assyrians in 722 BC, and they destroyed Israel, and they took the Israelites cap, into captivity. That was Israel. But then there was the... The kingdom of Judah that fell to the Babylonians in 586 and 87. You think they would have learned the lesson, but they didn't learn the lesson from Israel. But 
the Babylonians had to come in and destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple and drag them off into captivity. And then, of course, there's the occupation of Israel by the Romans. Israel would love to be free of the Romans back in the day. You see, all of those, what were those things? Those were events where, where God wasn't rejecting his people, but rather what he was doing is he's disciplining his people because in this sort of checkered history of Israel where there's obedience and disobedience, what God does is he loves his people. And in his love for his people, when we stray, he doesn't stop being faithful to his people. He's still faithful, but he may allow us to go through discipline. He may bring discipline in our lives. Some of that discipline can be pretty rough, but the design of that discipline is to bring us home, isn't it? To bring us home. Now we can take encouragement from this as well, because I, if you're like me, which I suspect that you are, every one of us as followers of Jesus has particular times in our life, moments, periods of time, seasons of our lives, where we might struggle to be faithful as followers of Jesus. We might have look back in our life and say, I, I've got times in my life where I feel like I was more faithful. I don't feel as strong anymore. And I, my faith is wavering or I'm struggling or my commitment isn't what it used to be. Or I know I've allowed things into my life that are not pleasing to the Lord. And you think God all of a sudden has abandoned you and rejected you? No, but God may end up bringing discipline in your life. He may. And I sure hope that wouldn't be the case because it's a lot better to turn back to him before the discipline comes. But if he does discipline, it's because he loves you. But he's so faithful to us. So maybe, maybe you're here tonight and you're in one of those places where you're like, you know, I kind of have a little bit of that checkered history like Israel. I, wa I want you to know that God is faithful to you. If you're really his, if you, if you really come to know Jesus, he loves you. And his, his heart's desire for you is not to discipline you, but for you to be restored to him. He's faithful to you. He's not turned his back on you. He's not forsaken you. But come home. Come home to him. The second thing I want you to note is that God is faithful to his people even when we feel like he's given up on us. We hit these places in our lives sometimes where we kind of feel this as people. God's promises concerning the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, if you think about it, went all the way back to Genesis 3.15, and, and they're not fulfilled in their fullness for a long time, years and years. We've seen that God gave his promises to David in approximately 1,000 B.C., and those promises are not fulfilled completely until around 6 B.C., roughly. It's a long time to wait. You know, when we're waiting for God to fulfill his promises, we, we sometimes are waiting around. We go, well, God, I know your word says this, but, I, but I'm not seeing it happening in my life. I'm not experiencing it happen. I, I feel like I've been praying about this or asking about this for a long time. And it could be that you're asking wrongly. Certainly it could be. I mean, if God's really promised something, he will remain faithful to it. But sometimes when we're waiting, no matter what we're waiting for, sometimes when we're waiting, we can actually act out improperly. And we, we can begin to question God's faithfulness. We can say, God, really, where are you now in all of this? Are, are you actually faithful to me or not? 
You, you see, this is what's expressed in Psalm 89. Now, why do I go to Psalm 89? Because Psalm 89 is a psalm that's written by a guy who's experiencing this very thing. His name is Ethan, and he's an Ezraite, we're told. And if, if you were to read this entire psalm, which I would encourage you to do at some point, you realize that there's some kind of background that's happening in Israel, something that has caused him to look at the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. The whole thing is about 2 Samuel 7. And he's looking in and he says, God, I know that you promised this. For example, in 89 verse 1 and 4, I'm going to sing of your steadfast love forever with my mouth. I'll make known your faithfulness to all generations. See, he's saying to, to God, you are faithful, God, to all generations your steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. And now notice what he's doing to God. He's saying, you have said this, God. These were your words, God. In other words, you said this, God. I'm, I'm holding you to your word. You said this. What did God say? I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. You see, that's all what we've been talking about, isn't it? And here now, at some particular point in Israel's history, we don't know exactly when. It could be shortly after the Babylonians came in and King Jeconiah was dragged off. And now maybe it could be in that moment that Ethan the Ezraite is looking at it and going, God, where's your promises to Israel? Where's your promises to the Davidic king? I don't see this happening. And as you read from verses 19 all the way down to verse 37, he goes over and over about the faithfulness of God, how God would put his offspring forever on the throne. He even says in verse 33 that God said, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I've sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. So all of this is Ethan saying this. This is God. This is what you said. Now notice in a transition in this passage. Look at verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected you are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds ruin. All who pass by plunder him. He's become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted your right hand on his foes. Over and over again he goes through this. What's he doing? He's beside himself about the promise of God. He sees so clearly what God has promised. But in the historical context, he's beside himself saying, but God, it sure looks like you've just abandoned and rejected that promise. Notice now what he says in verse 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked. And how I bear my heart, in my heart, the insults of the many nations. You see, what Ethan is doing here is 
He's saying, God, it sure feels like you've cast us all aside. And what Ethan needed to know and Ethan was trying to do is remember, I may feel that way, but God most certainly hasn't. In all of the, the dips and the, the valleys, all the broken roads that we hit in life and all the waiting that we experience, we might wait for everything. We might find ourselves wait. We wait in line, don't we? We wait at the DMV, of course, forever. We wait to use the restroom to be seated at a restaurant, like the Seinfeld episode where they're waiting to be called. Uh, we wait on a plane at the tarmac, don't we? we? We wait in the elevator. We wait for a baby to be born. We, we anxiously wait for test results from school, uh, from the doctor. We wait for our spouse to clean up his or her act. We wait for a new job, for a new promotion, for job recognition. We wait, we wait, we wait. Or in the words of foreigner, I've been waiting for a girl like you. Um, you know, most of the stuff we wait for doesn't take too long, but it's, it's, it's in the other stuff, right? And I wonder tonight if you're here and you've been waiting and you've been wondering if you feel a little bit like Ethan, the Ezraite, Lord, have you rejected me? Have you abandoned me? Have you cast me aside? I planted a church in Utah, and I was there for pretty close to 14 years at this church, and I left. And I actually honestly thought to myself, this will be no problem. I'll, I'll find another church right away. Um, little did I know that God had a completely different plan. God sidelined me for five years, and I had no idea like what was going on. I had some jobs that I hated doing. And I tried to do my best and I'd bring them to the Lord every day. But I felt completely stuck. I remember I'd go on walks every single day. I would I'd pray it out the best I could. I wish I could tell you that in the waiting that I was like a champ. You know, I, I knew how to wait. I mean, listen, I could write the book on waiting and just come to me and I'll give you all the kind of spiritual expert advice. No, I did a horrible job of waiting. I, I never had to wait before. And so there I was, sitting, wondering, God, are you done with me? But do you, do you not want me in ministry anymore? Am I, am I just no good? I, I would apply at churches as a pastor. I can't tell you how many churches I applied to, how many times I heard no. I thought, what is it, Lord? What is it? five years. As time went on, I really understood more. You know, looking back now, I totally get it. Now I can see the hand of God in my life. Now I can see what God was doing and I can see why I needed those five years. You see, I was extremely worn out. I was spent from planting a church and God had me on the sideline because he needed me to, to kind of get back to the basics. And then right at the right time, he started moving. Once I stopped flailing about and trying to push against God and constantly try to like make it happen, that's when God took over. And God opened doors in incredible ways, not only in financial provision for our family, but also moving us back into ministry. But those five years were some of the toughest years 
of my walk as a follower of Jesus that I've ever encountered. But one thing I can tell you from being on the other side of that, friends, God is faithful. He's so faithful. So what does Christmas say about God? Well, we've seen it to, we're, that God is generous, that he's near. But today we've seen that he's faithful, isn't he? Faithful to his promises, faithful to his plan, and faithful to his people. And if you need somebody to pray with because you feel a little bit like Ethan, the Ezraite, please come and see us at the back. We'd love to pray with you. Would you pray with me? Father, tonight we just give you thanks because you are so faithful. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for how trustworthy your word is. Lord, we can rely on your word. We can trust your word with everything within us. And Lord, thank you that you, you see all things, the things that we don't see. You, you have a perfect plan that you work out, that in your sovereignty and in your providence, you're orchestrating. And Lord, you're the one who brings it about in your way and in your time. And Lord, thank you that you, you are so faithful to us, even in the times when we waver and we struggle. But Lord, in your faithfulness, you also constantly say, please come home, come home, bring us Bring us back home, Lord, that we can walk closely with you. We just thank you for tonight in your word and our time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org.